Hello and welcome to this download from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest is Colin Brown, author of A Secret History of Whitehall. Colin is better placed than most to tell this story, having spent over 30 years as a Westminster correspondent. His book, Whitehall, The Street That Shapes a Nation, looks at the long history of one street, its buildings, from royal tennis courts to secret bunkers, and the people who have shaped it, from Henry VIII to Gordon Brown. Given the wealth of material available, I asked Colin how he had set about tackling his subject. I approached it uh, as if I was writing a biography about the street, and therefore I went chronologically through the centuries, um, layer by layer. I started actually with Edward I, and uh, the point being that uh, Whitehall has been an important thoroughfare through London for a thousand years. You can still find the structure of the old road that predated Whitehall. Uh, you can date Whitehall as a name very uh, accurately, really, because um, round about 1530, the former ecclesiastical palace owned by Cardinal Wolsey in the church was seized by Henry VIII. It was renamed then, and uh, this is one of the things that I confronted very few people have got a, a firm idea as to why it's called Whitehall. Architectural experts say that it's because a place of festivities used to be called the Whitehall. And there was a very large hall in the uh, Royal Palace. But I think, uh, because I come from a political background, it was done for political purposes. And uh, in his play, Henry VIII, Shakespeare seized on this, in which he's got two characters in the play saying, you must no longer call this York Place, its previous name, uh, when it was owned by the church, you must call it Whitehall. And I think that Henry VIII was stamping a new name on the place because he wanted to erase the memory of Wolsey. Yeah, uh, Henry VIII looms very large in the, in the early part of the book and emphasises the fact that thanks to him, it was really a, a centre for royal power, and that was, that was its significance for many centuries until, I think, William and Mary came along. Say something about the, the Tudor palace that, um, that Henry had and its sort of significance in, in, his, in his sort of court life. The most striking thing was the way that uh, the palace operated alongside the Thames. When Wolsey owned York Place, he had a, a long corridor built, and he was able to look up over the Thames and uh, look inwardly over some gardens and it was a place that he would walk along and he'd show off some of the uh, fine tapestries and he would have meetings in, in this long corridor or gallery and uh, one of the experts says that at the time it was really the height of fashion but when Henry took over the palace he did something very significant which was he built a privy gallery at right angles to the uh, river so that it ran inland and he did that for a very good reason. He decided that he would build his palace right across the main thoroughfare of Whitehall but on the uh, westward side he would develop an enormous sports complex. It would be the sort of thing that footballers today would want it had everything that he enjoyed at the time by way of sports. It, it had four indoor tennis courts, it had a tilt yard, it had a cockpit and an indoor bowling alley. 
But even Henry couldn't divert the road, so what he did is he built the Privy Gallery through a footbridge and a gateway, and that became known as the Holbein Gate. And so he was able to walk from the riverside right over to his indoor tennis courts without getting his feet in the mud of the road or meeting ordinary people. I was astonished to find there were parts of the royal palace that Henry laid out still standing behind the Portland stone facades of the cabinet office. There's a turret there that he would have recognised, which was a corner of one of his indoor tennis courts. And there is um, a passageway known as Cockpit Passage, which is in use every day to th th these days. Uh, the cabinet secretary told me that he walks along it every day because there's a secret way into uh, the side of number 10. You mentioned secrets, and that's one of the themes that runs through the book, this, this idea that there are lots of secret, hidden interconnections between different buildings, different parts of Whitehall, and there are all sorts of rumours about bunkers and whole sort of underground networks of tunnels and so on, and so you've been able to sort of investigate that to, to, to some extent, haven't you? I've interviewed people with secrets clearance who uh, were able to tell me something about the underground nature of Whitehall. I don't think it's true that the Prime Minister could walk to the House of Commons in tunnels, but there are communications tunnels under the main thoroughfare of Whitehall, and there is an enormous underground nuclear bunker underneath the main defence building. And I spoke to a defence minister who described being sent down there by officials at the Ministry of Defence, by defence chiefs, and when he got there, he said, but why are we here? And th this defence chief said, because somebody has to run the country, even after a nuclear strike. And he said, well, I'd rather it wasn't me. And he refused to co cooperate with them. Now, there are other bunkers as well. There's um, an enormous building at the back of uh, the, the Admiralty building. And I understand a very large underground bunker um, is, is placed there which is convenient for Whitehall and also the royal family in Buckingham Palace and there's a tunnel which runs nearly three miles under London as far as the new home office building and it goes right under uh, the QE2 centre and some years ago I stumbled across it when the QE2 centre was being built I went to what I thought was a, a lift taking me up from a car park. In fact, the lift went down mm. and I was met by a very startled officer. And one of the other extraordinary things that I found is that Woolsey's wine cellar is still in the basement just as he left it, underneath the Ministry of Defence main building. So you've got a nuclear bunker one side and Woolsey's wine cellar on the other. I thought the chapter on Downing Street was one of the most fascinating in the book, and I was really amused to hear that it had been put up more or less as a bit of opportunistic property speculation. Jerry-built, I think is how you describe it, and by the 1960s it was in danger of basically crumbling away. George Downing clearly uh, saw the advantage of obtaining a lease on the land when he was working in the cockpit offices as the spymaster general for Cromwell. And Cromwell more or less allowed him the lease on the land, but it was nearly 30 years before he finally got his hands on it. When he did so, in the 
about 1680, he built a small cul-de-sac of very jerry-built houses. And they were jerry-built because it was very boggy land, very marshy, and the foundations were based on a, a sort of raft of timbers that obviously eventually deteriorated and collapsed. As a result, the houses started shifting. Certainly by the 1960s, and there had been earlier restoration work on them, by the 1960s they were in such a dangerous condition that a carpenter had to be kept in Downing Street just to ease open the windows every now and then and do running repairs on the buildings. They were completely gutted but uh, restored to the uh, Georgian magnificence and those are largely the, the, the rooms that we see today. Walpole was the first Prime Minister to occupy the, the building. He, he was granted the lease on the uh, number 10 Downing Street, which was then numbered number 5 Downing Street, but he turned it down and he, uh, he was very wealthy anyway and uh, he, he said that uh, he would only take it as long as it was held in perpetuity for future Prime Ministers, although they, at that time the Chief Minister was known as the First Lord of the Treasury and that's why that title appears on the letterbox of number 10, even to this day. But having been given a free building to uh, live in, which was convenient for the House of Commons, he wasn't satisfied with the accommodation and uh, he got his own architect to knock together a very large house at the back of number 10 with the um, number 10 building. The curious thing is that he had the opportunity to have the entrance onto horse guards. It would have provided a very grand entrance to a very fine house. But instead, he chose the rather pokey entrance to number 10. It, it means that today you go into the front door of number 10 and it's like a TARDIS. You can walk inside number 10 through number 11 all the way to number 12, the house at the end. And you don't realise it, but when you walk directly through that famous door and keep going, the cabinet doors face you and then there's the spiral staircase, the famous staircase up to the first floor where the official rooms are. The Prime Ministers um, do tend, particularly these days, to find that uh, the space inside number 10 is not entirely adequate for running a modern government. It's not like the White House, it's not like the West Wing, and it's not like the Kremlin. It, it's just not big enough. Mm. As a result, Gordon Brown has very secretively expanded his empire into the Cabinet Office, which has been turned in all but name into the office of the Prime Minister. And he now has a war room in number 12, which is where the chief whips used to occupy and af after the Tories lost office Alistair Campbell took it over and that's where the press officers had their offices. Before we leave Downing Street I just wanted to ask you about the famous door because the, the door is not what it appears to be. No, after uh, the IRA attempted to assassinate the cabinet uh, while they were having a war cabinet under John Major the house was very badly shaken as were the cabinet ministers Douglas Hurd came out with a wonderful quote about being under the table and not being quite sure what Englishmen should do when being mortared and lying underneath the cabinet table. And John Major suggested to them, I think we should carry on somewhere else. 
and, and they dusted themselves down and went off to the Admiralty building. The house itself was very badly shaken up and uh, repairs had to be carried out. Uh, secretly, all the windows were made blast-proof. The whole building was made blast-proof, but the door itself, which actually shook with the explosion which was in the back garden, was replaced with a blast-proof door. It used to be wooden. The original is now in the Churchill Museum in the, in, in the Cabinet War Rooms. But the new one is more or less solid steel. It's so heavy that it takes eight men to lift it off its hinges. And it is quite secretly taken away every now and then, every few months, to be buffed up. Mm. There's a, there are two front doors mm. to number 10. I wanted to ask you finally, Colin, if there was one discovery that you made in the research of this book that really stood out for you, whether it was a, a view or a place that you hadn't been before, or some anecdote that, that really captured your imagination. I, I, I think that uh, the best example I came across of how a journalist can bring a different view to a book of history that historians have somewhat missed was in the Admiralty, uh, where I discovered that Nelson had had dinner with his wife Fanny in uh, 1798 in the grand dining room there, which is used today. And Fanny had been all attentive to her husband because he'd lost, already lost one arm. He required his food to be cut up and uh, she actually shelled nuts for him. <laughs> the love he showed to his wife was remarked upon and was written up in her diary. Two years later, in 1800, he returned for dinner with his wife Fanny. And I discovered that his attitude towards his wife had completely changed. He now treated her with absolute contempt. This was after the Battle of the Nile. He'd been to Naples after the battle, a hero, and had fallen straight into the arms of Emma Hamilton. He'd come back to London. Emma was pregnant, it's supposed, with his child. And he treated his own wife so badly that it said that she got up from the table and ran out crying and uh, she had to explain to the wife of the first sea lord the conditions in which she was living and it was not very long after that that Nelson and his wife parted and he went uh, to live with Emma in a strange menage a trois uh, with her husband. I think that by isolating those two visits to the dining room you, you saw a very different side of Nelson the hero you saw the human side of it flaws warts and all and I thought that was uh, stunning and there was a footnote to that story as well because it was in the same room that John Prescott was photographed holding his diary secretary in his arms which led to his own eventual resignation I think there's nothing new and certainly if you look back at Woolsey's life you could say that Woolsey could teach our current crop of politicians <laughs> something about how to milk the system. It's said that he was worth £11 billion which is more than Abramovich and he earned from the church and the state even in those days in, in um, Tudor coinage £33,000 a year. Wolsey's riches were so great that even Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn were astonished 
by uh, the gold plate, silver plate, and the fabrics that he left behind mm. when they went to inspect the palace after he'd been forced out.